Since George Floyd's death, countless advocates, government officials, task forces, and commissions have made demands and proposals for police reform. But one reform advocate took a novel approach. She went inside the police organization and joined up. Police reform seasoned with an insider's view. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your all-around justice nerd and geek, and your personal guide to all of the criminal legal space. And, hard as it is to believe, still so lucky to have that wonderful day job as a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. For those of us with a deep and long interest in policing that goes back decades, the months since the death of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer has unveiled a number and variety of proposals for police reform and change that we, that really no one, has ever seen. There have been proposals that range from what might charitably be called tinkering at the edges all the way to, in Minneapolis itself, city officials proposing to defund and close the city's police department outright. There have been proposals from advocates who have been in the police reform space for years, and we've brought you some of these here on Criminal Injustice, such as Christy Lopez in episode 134, the former Department of Justice official who spent years investigating police departments for civil rights violations, and whose deep experience gives her recommendations great weight. We've heard from Professor Paul Butler in episode 67, who's own years of teaching and research have led him to a full embrace of the abolitionist position. And we've heard from reform advocates from within law enforcement too, such as Cedric Alexander in episode 118, a veteran law enforcement leader with his own recommendations. The contrast between these positions can be very great, and honestly, we need to hear from everyone involved. But that contrast, that difference between positions, can sometimes seem too difficult to bridge. For example, let me start by reading a few lines from a commentary in USA Today by Errol Southers. He is a former police chief and FBI agent. He also tells us that he is an African-American. He says he wants significant change in policing, but he doesn't want police defunded. According to Chief Southers, and I'll quote, removing federal, state, and or local funding from law enforcement will not achieve the change we want. In fact, it could make things worse. Close quote. And according to Chief Southers, that worse could take the form of cuts to programs that he and the community value the most while law enforcement leaders use whatever budget they have left after cuts to maintain the minimal level of personnel and equipment they feel they absolutely must have. 
But for another position, here's activist and educator Joseph Capehart with just a little of his five-minute YouTube video explaining the idea of abolishing the police and how it differs from defunding and reforming. Check it out. The goal of abolition is exactly as it states, to abolish the police. And if we're not clear on that goal, we can't ever get there. And if we're not as clear as possible about what we're doing, we run the risk of maybe dismantling and disbanding some police departments, but then creating a system that's just as harmful, or recreating police departments under a different name. It happened with the 13th Amendment of slavery, and it can happen again today. In many ways, these views seem like such polar opposites that they can't be reconciled. And some folks in these debates say, that's right, they can't be reconciled. But what would we hear if we turned to an outsider advocate for real change in policing who has also been a police officer? Does that person even exist? Well, it turns out she does. And she's written a great book about her experiences. And she's going to tell us where they lead her on these important issues. Rosa Brooks is a professor of law at Georgetown University's Law School. She was a founder of Georgetown's Innovative Policing Program. She previously worked in the Departments of Defense and State, as well as for several human rights organizations and as a journalist. While a tenured professor at Georgetown, she entered the Police Academy in Washington, D.C., and from 2016 to 2020, she served as a reserve police officer with the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. Her book about that experience is called Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City, published in 2021 by Penguin Press And it details her experiences on the street, what she learned about police officers and policing and the communities they serve, and what those experiences tell us about what we should do right now. We have a link to the book up on our website. Rosa Brooks, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. Well, thanks very much. Uh, Let's rewind a bit. Uh, You had served in government on the federal level. You'd worked as a journalist. You'd been a law professor, all prior to the idea of joining joining the Metropolitan Police. Now, in these professional roles, you taught, I know, about police and and their issues and so forth, Um, uh, their powers, their duties and that. But this is another thing. Um, As a professor, it's one thing. But why the impulse now to sort of dive in and really become an officer instead of just talk about what officers do? Curiosity, I suppose, is the the biggest motivator for me. Um, I found out about the Reserve Corps program in the D.C. Metropolitan Police uh, 10 years ago. Um, I was at some kind of endless federal government briefing for executives on management, and I was sort of tuning out. And then a a woman who was presenting, a woman in her 60s, uh, suddenly said, you know, I'm a reserve police officer in Washington, D.C. And I, and I thought, what? That, you, what? You're a, what? Is that and a I, thing? I, <laughs> I just thought, that's crazy. Like, you can do that. You know, people can do that. And I got home and I looked it up and found, sure enough, that D.C. D.C. is quite unusual. There, there are a few other cities that do this, but most cities that have some kind of volunteer program connected to the police 
It's a program where people serve as auxiliaries. Maybe they help out uh, directing traffic at parades, that kind of thing. Uh But DC has a program where you can volunteer to be a police officer, uh, 24 hours a month of patrol. And you go through the same police academy curriculum. Uh, You come out on the other end as a sworn armed officer with full police powers and it, it still kind of astonishes me that this program exists um, the way it's, it's a pretty wacky program. Um, but, but from the time I first heard about it, it just seemed kind of fascinating precisely because the world of police is to so many people on the outside. It's so closed, so opaque. Yes. Uh, I mean, I could, I could give you more reasons, um, more reasons that make it sound grander, more academic and more highfalutin, but, but that sense of just, wow, really, I could be on the inside and see what that world is like, was probably the most powerful force. Yeah, curiosity, indeed. So uh, a reserve police officer, you have all the same uh, duties, responsibilities, and so forth as a quote, unquote, regular DC police officer when you're on the street? Yes, yes. And and um, you don't get paid. <laughs> There's that, uh, yes. Uh, but yes, you have to do the same training. You have to do the same annual, uh, refresher, professional development training, requalify on your firearms, et cetera. You have to go through field training, just like full-time paid recruits coming out of the academy. Um, but yes, essentially you, you do the same thing that other new academy graduates do and you, you serve as a patrol officer. So you have the power to arrest, the power to use force as necessary, the power to do everything. A regular. Can you believe that they give a law professor a gun? It's <laughs> <laughs> clearly a bad no. idea. <laughs> Although it could come in no, handy I at don't. meetings, right? <laughs> yes. There is that image that popped into my yeah. mind while I read. Um, so there you are. And uh, one of the things that you said uh, in something I read about you uh, was this idea and, and I'm just I'm just sort of gently paraphrasing here. Uh, if you want to change something, and clearly you wanted to change things about the police, you'd had that as part of your professor outfit for some time. To change something, you need to understand it. Were you thinking about that? Oh, absolutely. And and I uh, before I went to law school, I did a master's degree in social anthropology. And I have always been fascinated by the, the role of the anthropologist as participant observer. Um, the, the, and in journalism, instead of calling it participant observation, people call it immersed, immersion journalism. Um, so so that, that, that was certainly a piece of it. I think it could fairly be asked, and, and I was asked this many times, if you're interested in understanding police culture, you could, you know, why don't you just interview some cops? Uh-huh. Um, and, and I, you know, I could have interviewed some cops, um, but I don't think it is quite the same. Uh, I think that when officers are being interviewed by a journalist or an academic, they adapt their comments to what they consider that person wants to hear what they think sure. is appropriate. Um, I'm sure you found this yourself. Uh, yes. That doesn't mean that people don't sometimes let their guard down and say all kinds of stuff, but, but it's harder. Whereas if you're just sitting in a patrol car next to somebody on a, on a 10 hour shift um, and you're not a, a lawyer, you're not a professor, you're not 
a journalist, you're just their partner for the night. Um, you, you have very different kinds of conversations and you hear and see, I think, very different things. Yeah, I, I would gather that must be right, because I've like you, I've interviewed my share of police for my work and my books. Uh, I've done ride alongs, which is another step on the spectrum. You know, you're yeah, there for the yeah. for the shift, but you're not there for the long haul. This is yeah. a whole different thing. I mean, did they know that you had a day job, that you were a reserve officer, things like that? Yeah, sure. No, people knew I was a reserve officer because I would introduce myself that way. Um, and also the the district stations are small enough that people on each shift know each other. And if you pop up and they don't know you, you know, you introduce yourself and, oh, yeah, you're the reserve officer. OK, no uh-huh. problem. Um, uh, so that was not a surprise to anybody. And certainly people knew that I, like pretty much all of the reserve officers, had a day job. But nobody was terribly interested. Um, you know, <laughs> I think that we all think we're much more interesting to others than we in fact are. And my experience was, you know, I went in thinking a little bit like, oh, I hope they won't be intimidated by the fact that I'm so amazingly <laughs> awesome in my other life, you know, and nobody, nobody could care. They couldn't care less. I mean, people were like every, most people didn't even ask every now and then I get, you know, oh, so you're a reserve officer. So, you know, what's your other job? And I, I would usually say something boring, like um, lawyer, and I go, oh, uh-huh, okay you know, or I teach. And that usually made people assume that I taught elementary school or high school. And Uh virtually nobody asked any follow-up questions because apparently those are very boring professions to, to cops. Interesting. Yeah. We, I love the social (laughs) anthropologist they're talking. We all think we're a lot more interesting than to others than we actually are. So you said the training is all the same. You go through it. Uh, It's the same number of weeks and months. Um, But one of the interesting things that you said in the book was that, um, you know, what really surprised you was not what was in the training, but what what did not show up there. Uh, And we should put it in in context. You're in this training right after the events in Ferguson and the death of Michael Brown, the death of Eric Garner. Those are all contemporary events when you're in training. Right. Tamir Rice, Philando Castile. Yes. Yeah, and, 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 and many more, right? Yeah. And, and those things just didn't appear. Yeah. I mean, I should, I should clarify, by the way, that the, the training is not identical in the sense that the career recruits are there from essentially seven in the morning to three ish in the afternoon every weekday for reserve recruits. Our, our classes were, you know, two evenings a week and every, all, all day Saturdays. The only time we did the we were in the same classrooms as the career recruits was to do firearms training and to do emergency vehicles training and a few other things where where they put us in with the career classes. Uh-huh. Um, but it's the same. It's the same curriculum, the same skill set, same same subject, same tests, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, no, it's it was very striking to me. The whole country seemed to be having a conversation about race and policing, uh, policing and violence. Mm-hmm. You know, what are police for? What should they be doing? Why don't we have better policing? What is better policing? What is good policing? And how could we measure it and know if we have it, if, if that's what we want? Um, and those are obviously incredibly important questions. And, and that year then is now, as you know, there were, there were enormous protests in many major American cities, not, not yes. as sustained or as large uh, or as widespread as in 2020, um, but, but very significant. Um, 
And the whole nation seemed to be talking about policing. And the one place we weren't talking about it was the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Academy, where the the lessons were very tactically focused. You know, here is how you apply handcuffs to a prone person versus a kneeling person versus a standing person. You know, here is the, here are the nine property forms you must memorize and uh-huh. which color pen you must use to make corrections. Um, and to the extent that race came up at all, it was briefly dismissed. Uh, it was dismissed as something that doesn't matter um, and shouldn't matter and can't matter. You know, we all bleed blue we police. Uh, and as far as people who are not policed, you don't discriminate based on race. The end. We're done. That's the end of talking about race. Um, use of wow. force. We obviously got much more in depth on the use of force, but it was, again, very tactically focused, you know, very much focused on, well, both the, both the physical training. Here is how you use your expanding baton. You know, mm-hmm. here is how you do this. And lots of prohibitions. Don't do this. Do do this. Uh, but but we weren't talking about the big issues. And, and that was quite shocking to me because you would think that in the nation's capital, if anywhere, the people who are training to become police officers to have that incredible power given to them by the state, that the power to deprive someone of their freedom, the power to kill, deprive someone of their life. You would think of all places there, we would be talking about those issues and we weren't. Yeah. It is an incredible thing. I mean, that moment was the same moment that actually out of which this podcast was birthed. I mean, I wanted deeper discussions on those issues and I sensed a real hunger in the country for it. And to know that, you know, within the police academy, not happening. Uh, But there was one lesson that kept coming up that you said, you know, over and over really kind of pounded into everyone. And that was about what was happening around you as a police officer, that central lesson that anyone can kill you at any time. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, we really did spend a lot of time talking about officer safety. Um, And Mm -hmm. obviously officer safety is important. Um, We learning the tactical skills and how to approach a a dwelling, how to approach a vehicle safely and so on. But we also spent a lot of time watching these terrible videos um, of police officers getting attacked or killed. Um, And then we would analyze them. You know, somebody officer goes up to a car, somebody jumps out and shoots at him and he's dead. And, you know, and we, we would analyze these videos to, to look at, well, you know, how could that officer have approached that vehicle differently? You know, what, what were the tactical errors that yes. led to this officer getting killed? Um, and we recruits would watch these on their own time too, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> sitting in the cafeteria, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, it was constantly drummed into you. You have a right to go home safe and there's no such thing as a routine call. You know, any encounter could turn lethal in a millisecond um, which, which is true. You know, obviously that's, that's both profoundly true and profoundly misleading. How is it profoundly misleading? Well, it's, well, let me start with why it's profoundly true. I mean, you know, the week before I started at the Academy, a a young female officer in a neighboring jurisdiction was killed. It was her first day out of the Academy and she went with her training officers to a domestic violence call. And as they approached the house, uh, mm-hmm. the door burst open. A guy with a gun popped out, uh, shot and killed her, shot the other two officers who fortunately survived. And that can happen. 
Um, but it's also powerfully misleading because it does not, in fact, happen very often. Uh, policing is dangerous relative to many professions, but it doesn't even make the top 10 list of most dangerous occupations in the country. Uh, and the number of police officers who do get killed each year is, is, is fairly small. And obviously that's not to discount those lives lost sure. either. But just to say that if you have a, a distorted sense of how likely it is on any given day in any given encounter that you're going to face a lethal threat. You know, if, if your sense is that, you know, anyone could be a threat at any time, the danger is that you start seeing everybody as a threat all of the time. And that can affect how you respond to them. It can affect how jumpy you are. It can affect how quickly you are to yell at them. It can affect the tone you use. It can affect how you treat them. And in the most extreme cases, it can make people trigger happy. And I do think that that is part, not the only reason by any means, but a significant part of why uh, some, so many of the police killings that occur in this country occur. It's a, it's a cop who panics. Yeah. You know, this issue is really top of mind for me. Uh, I have a whole chapter in my 2020 book, A, Seri- a City Divided, uh, about this very thing, how this is trained into police from yeah. the first day. And those videos play an enormous part in setting the tone for uh, a police officer's vision of what he or she will mm-hmm. face. Uh, and this, of course, plays into the whole mindset of the police officer as warrior, which yeah. Yeah. is far too common. And if you think that deadly lethal violence lurks in every encounter, well, then you need to be a warrior because it's a war out there. And that makes things awfully dangerous. No, it's I mean, to give an analogy, it's a little bit like the the scare that sort of began in the 1980s, the, the notion that there were, you know, pedophiles lurking in every playground waiting to abduct children and between the 1980s and today, uh, how parents parent and whether they'll let their children play alone in a mm-hmm. park change dramatically. Um, if you, and it's, it happens all the time, you know, there, when there is a high profile incident in which a child is abducted, everybody freaks out and says, I'm not letting my child out of the house unattended for the rest of their lives. And if I have to lock them in the basement until they're 47, so be it. Needless to say, if you lock your kid in the basement until they're 47, you're going to have a pre- pretty messed up kid. Even if you just never let them go out to play with, except with you two feet away from them, you're going to also have a kid who is lacking some major life skills. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a similar thing. I mean, is there a risk? Yeah, sure. There is a risk. Um, it, and when it happens, it's awful, but it doesn't happen that often. And if we let ourselves be governed by the fear of something that is statistically pretty unlikely happening, then, you know, that will really distort everything that we do. Yeah. So with that in mind, as background, uh, you go out, you're assigned to 7D, which is a a, a district with all of the uh, urban problems, urban ills, crime, and so forth that you'd find in any big city and maybe more so. Um, And you tell a lot of very, very uh, of, of strong stories in the book of encounters of people and so forth uh, and the lessons that they leave on you. Maybe could you pick one out that really left an impression on you? Gosh, uh, and, I, 
And yeah, I won't take so one literally. So you can you can go wherever you want with this. You know, there are so many. Um, and I think the the many of the ones that got to me, unsurprisingly, were, were ones that involved kids, uh-huh. um, uh, either as perpetrators or, or as victims um, or or as care, caretakers. And I'll, I'll briefly mention just two stories. Um, one time we got this was both. This one was very early on and I was out of the academy. I was still, you know, I was a month, I don't know, a couple months out of the academy. So I didn't know that much. Um, and we were called, we got a call for a domestic violence assault call. My partner and I get there. It, it quickly turns out that the the issue involved a fight between a mother and her daughter, a daughter of 16 or 17. Um, and there's so so I'm outside I'm interviewing the mother my partner is inside interviewing the daughter and then at a certain point as a sort of standard practice you you switch uh, uh, and I went inside to interview the daughter um, and I walked into the living room where the daughter was sitting in a chair and I realized I'd walked I'd interrupted a very tense encounter um, my my the, the 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 daughter the girl was yelling she was not yelling. She was saying in a, in a heated voice, she was saying, you know, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to you know, yell at me. And my partner was saying, you know, well, I didn't know what you were about to do. I saw you reaching into your bag and, you know, I, I don't know what you're going to do. You know, you could pull out a gun. And the girl said, well, you're the one with the gun. You know, I was, I was just trying to pull out my phone to show you that I'm the one who called 911. And, and this went on a little bit. Um, and eventually the, the girl said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Um, you know, I'll only talk to Officer Brooks. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it turned out she and her, her mother had a new boyfriend. The girl was supposed to be with her grandmother because a court had ordered her out of her mother's custody. She felt very abandoned and rejected by her mother. Um, and meanwhile, while I'm having this conversation with her and, you know, I have kids, I have kids who are just at the time, just a little bit younger than she was. So it was impossible as a mother not to just be heartbroken by this girl's sense of yes. reaction. And the, the assault involves a little bit of hair pulling and sort of, you know, scratching. It wasn't, it wasn't the crime of the century in any case. And both of them seem to have been involved. But while I was talking to her, my partner and the sergeant had arrived, decided that the girl was the primary aggressor in a domestic violence assault and that therefore she had to be arrested. Uh, and it just kind of broke my heart and made me feel pretty sick. You know, I was sort of imagining my own daughter uh, in that situation. Um, and and was it just that it's so easy to see your own family members in these others? Or, I mean, did you get a sense of the limits of what you could accomplish or oh, whether yeah. maybe your, your, your actual, your task would make things worse? Yeah, no, I mean, I think arresting that girl was the absolute worst thing in the world. It was one of the two or three things that I was involved in during my time as reserve officer that, that I profoundly regret and feel some sense of discomfort and and shame when I think about them. Um, There was no way that arresting that girl made anybody's life better. Um, I'll mention just briefly the, the other story, which was another call uh, for a person bleeding very badly in a parking lot in a housing project. And, my different partner and I get there and this was a little, you know, some, sometime later, um, eventually we're approached by two children, um, a girl who probably couldn't have been more than 13, might've been 11 or 12 and a, and a, and a younger boy 
Um, and it turned out that their mother had been assaulted uh, and they were trying to get medical care and the police to take ah. care of the mother. The mother, when she was finally located, was drunk and angry at the fact that the children had called an ambulance and had called the police and kept insisting mm. she didn't want that. She didn't need that. She was probably not only drunk, but on, on some other substances. She had, you know, visible uh, bruising and blood around her, around oh, her mouth. Um, and watching this little girl and her brother trying to take care of their mother who is pushing them away and is angry at them. And they don't, didn't even live with the mother. They lived, they lived with an aunt. Um, so this wasn't even their home was, was again, so poignant, just, just watching these little kids having to do what adults should do in a situation where we couldn't really help. I mean, in this particular situation, the description of the person who'd committed the assault was, was pretty vague and he was no longer on the scene. So all we could really do was, was take a report and pass it along to officers on other shifts and the detectives. Um, and just walking away from that, that little girl, you know, I gave her my card and sort of said, you know, you call anytime, but knowing that this, this little, you know, knowing what that little girl was going to face um, yes. in terms of, you know, have, having to be the grown up even when she should have been able to be the child. Oh, it's so painful. Just heartbreaking. Let's take a quick break here. We're with author Rosa Brooks. Her excellent new book is called Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a second. Hi, everyone. Criminally Injustice, David Harris here, and we are with author Rosa Brooks. Her new book is called Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City, uh, published by Penguin Press in 2021. Link to it up on our website. Um, Rosa, before the break, we were talking about some of the things that had happened during your time on the street. And right now, of course, um, we are recording this 10 months after the death of George Floyd, and uh, the country has seen upheaval about race and policing and racism as never before. And uh, so many suggestions, so many demands, so many ways of approaching uh, changes in policing. But one of the things I wanted to ask that came to mind as I prepared was, you're a resident of the Washington, D.C. area. I know where Georgetown Law School is. It is not far from the capital of the United States. And, of course, we all saw the events of January 6th, uh, how the Capitol Police, uh, in many instances, uh, really suffered terribly that day. Some of them didn't behave well that day. And then we also saw a small number of them, I should say. Uh, and then a, a, uh, uh, we also saw that some number of police officers were actually involved in invading the Capitol and some of the, uh, the activities that went on there. And subsequent investigation has disclosed uh, the involvement of police in these uh, extremist activities, some um, uh, some racist activities, things like that. What was your reaction to that? Did that surprise you? No, of course not, for two reasons. One, one being that 
police officers is not a monolithic culture. Uh, there are police officers who took a knee to show respect and solidarity with racial justice protesters. And you're going to have police officers who are right-wing Trump supporters. Um, in D.C., I may have gotten a skewed view of this. Um, the D.C. Metropolitan Police is a majority-minority police department. Um, uh, and it is in a overwhelmingly democratic city. So I certainly didn't run into a lot of police officers in D.C. who were white nationalists or, or uh, part of right-wing violent extremist groups of, of any kind. That, that being said, one thing that we do know is that a number of right-wing extremist groups have, they have made a concerted attempt to recruit from within law enforcement's ranks and to encourage their members to consider joining law enforcement, applying for law enforcement jobs. One thing we don't know, and, and obviously there could be people in law enforcement who are not part of such groups, but who are sympathetic in some degree. One thing we don't know is how widespread the problem is. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know if it's a marginal problem or a central problem. Uh, and I think that's something that obviously one of the challenges ahead for all of us in the, in the coming years is going to be to get a handle on that. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that thus far, uh, we've seen the FBI, Homeland Security, and and many police leaders taking it extremely seriously. Yeah, and we do see much more seriousness about that now in the following months. Um, you know, maybe it's been in the time since you finished the work on the book um, that uh, these very intense discussions about reform and change, even defunding and abolition and so forth, these have all been in the air and seriously discussed. Uh, and I wonder uh, what your reaction is to it. I mean, uh, I had one of your colleagues, uh, Christy Lopez, a very, very thoughtful, experienced lawyer and law professor on the podcast not long ago. And I put this question to her. I mean, is reform over? There are a lot of people who say you can't reform the institution. We've tried that. It hasn't worked. Minneapolis was a, you know, it was one of the places where the uh, one of the national initiatives was tried. Uh, we've got to basically uh, blow it up and start from scratch. As a person who's not only studied this, but has been out there, what's your reaction? Well, I will say that I, I haven't studied this nearly as much as, as you have or as my colleague Christy has. My, my own field of scholarship is, is actually different. It's international law and national security law. Um, so I don't consider myself an expert on this at all. So my, 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 my perceptions are just that. Um, I, I think when people say reform has failed, it depends what you mean by reform. Um, take Washington, D.C. In the, at the end of the 20th century, the late 90s, um, Washington, D.C. had one of the highest rates of officer-involved shootings in the country. And uh, the police department entered into a memorandum of understanding with the Department of Justice yes. um, about on changing use of force policies and training. And an independent auditor looked at the department about four or five years ago, I can't remember, uh, and concluded that D.C. no longer had a problem with excessive force. Um, does that mean that the D.C. Police Department has no problems at all? No, of course not. But but that, I think, is an example of, you know, reform can make a difference. It can make an enormous difference. I think when people say reform has failed, what they often mean is that 
when people use the word reform, they're, uh, they're essentially accepting most things about the system as givens. They're just trying to make aspects of it better. And if you think that the entire system is, is rotten to the core, then there's no point in, you know, it's just sort of putting lipstick on a pig, as they say. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I don't think it's that reform has, quote, failed. I think, I think when people say that, what they usually mean is it's still a pig, and, and no pun intended, since obviously that's a derogatory slang term for police. Um, I, I think that there are many in this country who believe very deeply that, that policing is a profoundly racist enterprise, that it is grounded in uh, the historically enslaved patrols, um, that the purpose of policing, not incidentally, but the very purpose of policing relates to maintaining white supremacy, and that, that no amount of tinkering will fix that, no amount of little improvements here and there will fix that, that you need to essentially start all over. Uh, my own reaction to that is, uh, I think that the debate about police abolition and defunding the police is a really important one. Uh, I think it's unrealistic. It's not, I don't think it's going to happen, but I don't think that matters because I think that if you don't have a vision of where you would like to be, even if you recognize that you'll never get to that place, but if you don't have that vision, then you don't have any basis for deciding which of the more marginal improvements is worth pursuing and which, which isn't in a sense, you know, that the only way to make reform more wholesale is to insist that it's not enough and perhaps paradoxically. Um, and I, and I also think, you know, I don't love the language of abolish, abolishing policing. I don't love the defund language either. Um, but I think that when you frame it, and if you ask a cop, if you say to a cop, um, hey, we think we should defund the police, that cop, as you know, is going gonna, is gonna to go, are you out of your mind? You know, have you seen the station I work in? Have you seen my vehicle? Have you seen my equipment? I can't do what you people, the voters, and you the people, yes, will need mm-hmm. to do with the resources I have as it is. And now you want to take money away from the police department, you know, drop dead. Um, if you change that question, though, and instead say to police officers, hey, tell me about the things that you do that you don't think you should be doing. Uh-huh. Um, and then say, and also tell me about the things that you do where you don't think what you do is effective because the city services that you wish were there are not there. Like the guy who's waving a knife in traffic uh, who you take to the emergency psychiatric clinic on Saturday and on Sunday morning, he's back out doing the same thing because there is no long-term form of treatment for him. Um, I think when you ask those questions, that's where you actually find a tremendous amount of common ground between police officers and critics of policing. And if you frame it more as working together, let's work together to reimagine what public safety means, what it would require, uh, and how close or far away are we right now from having the, the right people with the right capabilities to, to accomplish that, you get a lot of agreement and, and thinking of it more as a, okay, if we wanted to be in that place in 20 years or 10 years, what do we need to do now? What investments do we need to make? What, what types of new recruiting efforts do we need to make uh, in order to start us on that pathway? So, so I, 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 think it's, I think it's an incredibly important conversation, even as I feel like the, there are, it, it's, it's, the abolitionist vision is unlikely to be fully realized. It's still 
I think helps push us in the right direction as long as it is not used in a way, and unfortunately it is often used in a way that makes cops so defensive that they won't be part of the conversation. Because I also think, by the way, is that I do think that transforming policing has to involve police. Yes. There are, in fact, many officers, you know, there are there are terrible officers out there, but there are also many officers who would, in fact, be excited to be part of that discussion if there's a route for them to join it. Right. So if we're going to have that conversation about reimagining police, what they should be doing, what we want others to do, what we should look for in two, three, five years, what would be the top one, two or three things on your list that you would want to see change or different? Oh, gosh. Um, So on my list, my list is really long, so it's kind of hard to pick the top three. But um, I think police training could be radically reinvented, um, uh, demilitarized. Um, you, you may be familiar, uh, but if your listeners aren't, they, they should look up um, Sue Rar's program in the Washington State Law Enforcement Academy. Sue Rar wrote an important paper, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, 15 years ago, called Guardians versus Warriors. Yes. Where she talked about those two different images of police and and she's a, a former sheriff, and she has really remodeled the Washington State Academy's curriculum with the goal of producing officers who will see themselves as guardians, primarily, not as warriors. She um, was part and, of the President Obama's 21st century yeah, task force yeah. for exactly that reason. And I, I could say much more about exactly what that means, but in the interests of time, I won't. Um, so training. Uh, recruiting. I would love to see a national service program in this country with policing as one of the options. I think that it's critically important to bring new people, new voices, new views, new perspectives into policing. Uh, I would also love to see a lot more women. That's that's part of that, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. A whole other podcast on law enforcement and gender. Um, uh, And I would also like to see police get out of the business of enforcing civil regulations, particularly those relating to traffic. Uh, it's it's so strange that in most of this country, Ber- Berkeley is doing an experiment in that right now. It'll be fascinating yes. to see how it goes. But it's so bizarre. You know, when you, if you miss an IRS estimated tax payment, you don't get an armed guy in a uniform showing up at your door, telling <laughs> you to get outside and, you know, potentially frisking you and so on. You get a letter from the IRS eventually. And if you ignore that, you still don't get an armed guy, you know, to, the armed guy is many, 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 many steps away from you. Um, but if you make a right turn on red, when there's a sign that says no right on red, an armed guy is going to stop your car. And so many of the tragedies that we've seen uh, in terms of police killings and police officers getting killed involve vehicle stops. Yes. Often in situations where the original infraction was not a criminal offense at all. It was merely a civil infraction. That would be one quick and easy way to reduce the number of of encounters that have that potential to go badly wrong. And that's not to say that police should never stop cars. You know, if you've got a guy who's shooting out the window as he drives, you know, or fleeing felon, there are sound reasons to try to stop that car. Uh, but the 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 civil infractions, absolutely not. Yes. So DWI, sure, reckless driving, of course, but. Right. 
the 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 tail light lens I'm you've with. got you've got the, your foam dice or you know obscuring your windshield or yes. whatever um yes. and and I could go as 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 I'm sure you could go on and on and on the one other thing I, I will say you said three so now I'm going to do four um because I'm because I'm a law professor um would be something that I really try to impress upon my law students um if you don't like police what like if you don't like what police do look in the mirror because police do what we tell them to do. You know, they enforce laws that they didn't make, you know, in a social context that they didn't create um, and can do very little to change. And if you want to change, you know, if you don't like the fact that so many people are arrested by the police for trivial offenses, or you don't like the fact that so many people in our society are arrested by police and end up incarcerated for excessively long times, go talk to the prosecutors, go talk to the judges, and look in the mirror because we're the people who elected the people who passed the stupid laws that created that system, you know, and that's not something that police created. And, you know, I think that this is, this is the, the fallacy in a sense of the abolish the police movement. You could abolish the police, but the whole rest of that unjust system is still out there. Um, and the whole rest of the, the socioeconomic legacy of, centuries of races and so on is still out there. Um, and if we really are serious about changing policing, we have to be serious about working on those things as well. That's Rosa Brooks. She's the author of a new book called Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City, published in 2021. We have a link to the book up on our website. Thanks very much for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice. David, thank you for having me on your podcast. It was a lot of fun. Stick around for another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Division. And this episode's Judge Behaving Badly from the Oregonian and the ABA Journal News Online is Judge Darvin Zimmerman of Clark County, Oregon. The pandemic has brought almost everything online, Zoomed, live-streamed, what have you. And this has included courts and their proceedings. States and counties have varied a lot in their practices, but we've now had countless hearings of countless varieties in courts all across the country. Sometimes, as we know, things can go wrong. I can still clearly recall assembling online for a Zoom committee meeting of some kind, which committee included some attorneys. As we waited for the group to come fully together at the appointed time, an audio stream began to play in our space. As my Zoom mates and I listened, it became obvious that one of our fellow committee persons was sitting in a courtroom somewhere as part of a legal proceeding that was live. Worse, we could soon tell that the proceeding was a closed mental health commitment hearing. It was the legal equivalent of a butt-dial call disclosing embarrassing personal information. 
And of course, speaking of things going wrong, who can forget the lawyer appearing with the cat face filter on him, talking, or should I say meowing, to the judge, but unable to turn the filter off. Well, Judge Darvin Zimmerman had a similar experience, and what was revealed was not pleasant. It seems that Clark County, Oregon, live-streams certain kinds of court proceedings. Fine, so do a lot of other counties and organizations. But when the live-stream is not cut off after the hearing is over, the whole courtroom is the equivalent of a hot mic. And anyone who might be just sitting and talking is live-streamed out for all the world to see and hear. And that was what happened with Judge Zimmerman. Court was over, you see, and so he could just relax and shoot the breeze with one of the court commissioners. And shoot the breeze he did, about a local police shooting of an African-American man. The man, Judge Zimmerman said, was really dumb. He was the subject of a low-stakes drug bust and... The dummy, he thought he'd be going to prison. So the dumb guy did the dumb thing and ran from the police, gun in hand. The implication, you really can't blame the police for shooting the guy. And how does everyone in the community react? Well, according to Judge Zimmerman, he describes the man police shot as, quote, the black guy they are trying to make an angel out of, close quote. Now, what the man's race has to do with this is, well, not explained. I guess we white people are all just like, you know, supposed to understand. You know how it is. But Judge Zimmerman's unintentional live stream performance was not over. He gets going with a demeaning commentary about the shooting victim's father. Here's some audio from the clip. KP's dad says, well, yeah, if you had a gun, I guess it would justify it. <laughs> and the next day he wakes up with dollar signs in his eyes and oh, no. George Floyd attorneys had already contacted him. Now, did you get that? He describes the father of the man who was shot as having awakened the day after the shooting, quote, with dollar signs in his eyes and George Floyd's attorneys contacting him. Wow, sure is nice to know how our public servants in courtrooms really feel about events of public concern, like police shootings and the victims of those shootings, all of which might someday in this case or some other wind up in front of those same public servant judges pretty callous. Well, Judge Zimmerman apologized after the recording became public. Quote, my lifetime goal has been and will be to be fair to everyone, he said, close quote. And just in case anyone thought anything bad was meant by that whole black guy remark, he also wants us to know that he spent his, quote, whole life helping and mentoring mainly marginalized youth. Well, I am sure no one would look good all the time with their innermost thoughts exposed. So I'm glad not everything I say and do is recorded, and I always do my best to be careful to turn off those record buttons before I start running my mouth. So it's perhaps tempting to say, there but for the grace of God go I, but that's not the point, is it? I don't see myself making those remarks. 
But even if I did, or you did, we aren't judges. At least, I'm not. And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Division. And with it, we wrap up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't done that already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave tab on our website, that's right at the landing page, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. That number is 412-407-3389. Again, 412-407-3389. Please remember that we are a listener-supported program. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. That's patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate that. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Every day in American courtrooms, forensic science offers evidence to judges and juries. Fingerprints, ballistics, shoe prints, even bite marks. It's supposed to provide scientific proof of guilt. But what if it's a lot less reliable than we think? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at CriminalInjusticePodcast.com. <laughs>